Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. We bring you leaders acting on their environmental values because too many people told me, I want to act, but if others don't, then what I do won't matter. We're here to make it obvious that you're not alone. You're part of a global community, a majority. Also, too many people told me, doing small things doesn't make enough of a difference and big things take too much work. Action matters more than the size you start with. You'll hear how action motivates guests from small things to doing big things. You won't find guilt, blame, doom, gloom, or telling people what to do. You will find leading without relying on authority, which brings what I found missing from acting on environmental values. Joy, discovery, growth, community, meaning, purpose, value, sharing. With global demand for environmental action, I bet you'll see that acting on your values doesn't distract from your life and career. Follow in these leaders' footsteps, and beyond enjoying the environment, I bet you'll see promotions, raises, more loyalty and trust in your relationships, and more. You'll be amazed what happens to you. So I went into doing this garden. I knew nothing about gardens, but I understood show business. I understood that I needed to tell a new story about gardens, and I marketed it, and I gave it the name The Lost Gardens Of, which made it really romantic. But no one in the garden world had ever thought of doing that. That's how it all began. Look at a different twist. So if you see your life experience as being the sum total of lots of experiences that may one day go to making the perfect job, which was the job you're meant to have, the role you're meant to fulfill, then life looks very, very different. Because every failure, every relationship, every book you've read, record you've listened to, film you've seen, walk you've made, every relationship you've been bad at, all of that learning then suddenly comes into play for a magnificent moment of theatre as you suddenly discover the thing that's meant to actually be catching you by the snout and leading you off into your dream. I met Tim at least a year ago, and I loved what he did and how much he loved what he did, which was to turn a trashed wasteland into a beautiful living space, also a tourist destination throughout Europe, also a thriving business, and now spreading around the world to become the same things in other places where industries have trashed the landscape. As a leadership and entrepreneurship teacher, it's important for me to get across that he had no special resources, no connections, no special skills to start what he did. Anyone can do what he did and what he keeps doing. So he's yet another example of someone who, instead of looking at environmental action as distraction or deprivation or sacrifice, turned and faced it and by meeting literally global demand, brought great success to himself and to his communities. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Tim Smith. Tim, how are you? I am magnificent today. Great to hear. <laughs> Wait, why magnificent as opposed to, so many people just say fine. Are you especially magnificent today? Why be so beige? Why just be fine? I am magnificent. The reason I am magnificent is I learned in Nigeria when I lived there for six years that if you start the day magnificent and all sorts of hell breaks loose around you, at least you'll end the day fine. If you're fine now, it's downhill all the way, pal. <laughs> so... Actually, I want to build on this magnificent. Can you describe, okay, you do the Eden Project in, it began in the southwest of England. Uh, I can see, I know that behind you, there's that picture of what's going on in China. I think you're doing stuff in the southwest of the United States. Can you describe, what is, the, what is the Eden Project today? Well, the Eden Project today is several different things. It is a place here in the southwest of England, Cornwall, which is a county or a province in uh, Britain that, if I was to walk to the west, I'd fall into the ocean, and the next thing I would come to would be New York. Uh, it's right at the far west of Britain. Um, we took 
uh, a disused clay mine that was 200 feet deep and 35 acres in depth, in uh, girth, uh, and transformed it from a sterile poisoned place into a place that is full of plants. We created 90,000 tons of soil. We built some amazing structures and we decided to open to the public to demonstrate uh, both the optimism of what humans can do when they work together on something amazing, uh, but also to uh, inspire people to think about the, our dependency on the natural world, because I believe that only by understanding how dependent we are on it will we learn to respect it and realize that our creatureliness is actually part of a very intricate and beautiful web of life in which all things, or to the best of our knowledge, all things in one way or another intimately relate to each other, uh, which means that by damaging chunks of our environment, um, we will ultimately be damaging ourselves. So that's how we began. We opened to the public in 2001. Uh, we have an average of 1.1 million visitors a year. Uh, wow. We're very... We're, yeah, we're, we're very political. Um, I am a capitalist. I believe that one of the great issues in the world is not your politics, it's actually whether you have a moral compass. Uh, and I believe in capitalism and its healing power if those who are practitioners keep a moral compass in terms of the way they do their business. So we have supported local supply, uh, zero waste and so on, and we have actually put a a spin which many people who are right-wing are incredibly puzzled at our success. So we realize that if you understand business as opposed to talk about business and you want to help small businesses, you have to give them longer-term contracts so that they can then go to their bank and get more money to make their business grow uh, in the security of being able to be a supplier to you. So now we have something like 2,400 suppliers, most of which have got long-term supplies to us. Uh, and many of them have grown like Topsy since we've started working together and are now national brands and are available across the country. And it's created lots and lots of jobs. And Cambridge University researched uh, the Eden Project economic impact and reckoned that over the last 20 years, we've put something like £2.2 billion pounds sterling of new wealth into the economy. On the back of that, um, bear in mind that where we are was considered the least economically viable province and we were situated in the least economically viable place in the least economically viable province, so poor that it actually got aid and assistance from the government uh, to compensate for that. And that's so we decided that we wanted to took a lifeless poisoned plot of land. I mean, yeah, give me your poison is what I always say. That is why the projects in China that we're working on are poisoned. Um, we're working in the desert for Expo 2020 for um, the Emirates. We're doing the sustainability pavilion with Grimshaw, um, the architect, and our friends uh, think Thomas Hennis incorporated um, the New York designers who did uh, the 9-11 uh, memorial uh, there. We're working in Australia in an old mine, um, which is very damaged. Uh, we're working in Canada in a place that is mercury polluted. Um, where else are we working? We're working in the USA uh, in a place that got damaged by a chlorine gas explosion uh, in uh, the South in South Carolina. Uh, we've also got wild projects because we 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 want to demonstrate by filming and live in those wild projects coming back into these destinations around the world. Uh, we've got a project uh, in Aldabra, which is probably the most perfect. 
island atoll in the world with the most perfect um, uh, coral reef. Uh, that is, it's utterly astonishing. When you dive there, you can't believe the amount of life. But actually, it's not just the numbers. It is that the entire food chain is visible from huge sharks through tuna and bonito and all the rest of it down to the tiniest creatures because there's no fishing been allowed there since 1963. Um, and that's on Aldabra, which is the Galapagos of the Indian Ocean. It belongs to the Seychelles. Uh, we have a project, a rainforest project in Costa Rica, in the Nicoya Peninsula, which again is fantastic. Uh, um, a philanthropist bought in uh, 1980, 1978, he bought um, uh, 42 farms so denuded of um, fertile ground that they were just not doing anything. And he said, I'm going to let the birds crap this back to life. <laughs> he put a fence around 10,000 acres, and today it is the most gorgeous, gorgeous rainforest. But more importantly, a land which had been made arid, and there used to be murders amongst the people who lived there because of lack of water for five months, now has four rivers running, running 365. Very inspirational. And the last project, our natural project, is in the USA. Uh, where we are in the process of purchasing the last privately owned large uh, old growth forest of giant sequoias in the Sierra Nevada mountains, 474 acres, uh, including what we think may well be the genuinely the largest tree on earth, bigger even than the General Sherman, um, which I had the privilege to climb last year. Wow. And what's amazing, when you get to the top, you look one way and you look over the Sierra Nevada mountains and Sequoia National Park, and then you turn your head 180 degrees and you look at Death Valley. It's biblical in terms of its meaning. And it's even more biblical in the sense that under your hand, under the soft bark of this marvelous tree, um, you realize that you're holding something that is 4,400 years old. It has actually outlived 37 complete civilizations from their birth to their peak to their death. And you wonder, well, maybe nature can teach us something. I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people out there, they think I want to, you know, the environment stuff, that's, that's kind of interesting, but you know, I got to get ahead in my career and that's a distraction for me. And so I'll get to it when I can, but I really got to stick with what I'm doing. But I keep finding people who by turning and facing the problem or turning and facing something that people care about and acting on it, then they become leaders or they, how did things begin for you? I don't, I don't want you to, well, if you, I don't want to, I don't want to bore you and have you tell the same story you've told many times, uh, especially if it's already out there. But did you envision all of this? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, and I think, I think those who are the most effective leaders have feet of clay. The people who are the most brittle are actually those that claim perfection. I think occasionally you might have a takeaway Indian meal and you might need redemption because you had something that had to be thrown away. It doesn't matter, provided your journey is on a way, uh, is going in the right direction. And I think one of the problems people have is they think that things are big. The Eden Project is big. What I do is big, but it's actually comprises lots and lots of smalls all linked together. And that's something that most people don't understand, that, that A, most people are looking for a dream. They're looking for an adventure. And if you can create a stage and a story that is big enough, it is strangely easier to do than a rather more modest story. 
because everybody has this little grain of disappointment inside themselves. When they look at themselves in the privacy of their own room and they think, what could I have been? What could I have done? The people who are the best in the world to work with are the people who are already in their 50s and 60s who feel as if they betrayed their past. These are the people, like if I was a Jesuit, give me a seven-year-old and they're mine forever. The people who are really, really fertile ground are the people who are, as I say, of a certain age. And you say, hey, it's not too late. There's an adventure still to be had. And they will work and work and work and work. Eden was built on a mix of people over the age of 50, mentoring people who are under the age of 25. And the reason for that is that it's a cliche, but the older people know that you need the young people to be leading from the front because they don't know it can't be done. Whereas the older people actually suspect it can't be done. But if it can be done, it will be done by people who don't know that it can't be done because they won't be allowed themselves to be talked out of it. So I've always known that. I've always known also that where we are mad as humans, we talk about capital all the time, we talk about money, uh, as if having no money will get you, get in the way of doing a lot of things. I made my, my career on, I started as an archaeologist, I then joined a rock band, and when I was in a rock band, I had no money. But I did know that the best studios in the world weren't working 24 hours a day, the best engineers weren't working 24 hours a day, the best musicians weren't working 24 hours a day. So if I could persuade them to come and work with me and to allow me to use the studio for free, and then I paid them back if it worked out, that was going to be the secret to actually having capital that wasn't mine, and I borrowed it. And that's how it worked. I made record after record after record, and I got paid for it, but none of them were successful. I was a loser for year after year. But I got record deals and I paid everybody whatever their share was. And then suddenly I had a very big hit in Europe and I then had several more. Um, and eventually I got bored and rather depressed by the music industry and decided to move down to the far west to Cornwall. But I did it out of random, a random thing. I've never, ever been enslaved to the, the slates on my roof. I've always been enslaved to actually wanting to be excited by life. And I ceased to, I ceased to be excited. So I moved to Cornwall on a whim. I had nothing, to, I had no job to go to, no career that I knew what I wanted. And as I was thinking what I was going to do as I sat in this farmhouse, which I was trying to do up, and I'd spent all my money on it, I was now broke, um, a friend gave me a pig. And I liked the pig, the pig liked me, and I realized eventually he was lonely, so I found him a mate, and they mated. I then realized that what I really wanted to do was to have a rare breed park, so I went to find some land on which to build a rare breed park. And I went to see the man who had the land. And he said, I'm afraid I've just rented it to somebody else. And then I realized that my lips were too sensitive and I couldn't drink the coffee he'd given me. Um, so I either left the coffee or I made small talk. And I then said to him, I used to be an archaeologist. And he then uttered the immortal words, I have need of an archaeologist. And that's how my career changed. So I then went with him to discover this estate that he'd inherited, which is completely overgrown and had been for 70 years. And I fell in love with it. It was called, it was called Heligan. And I restored it. It became famous as the Lost Gardens of Heligan. It is now the most famous privately owned garden in Britain. And it was having done that and having restored it with a whole load of volunteers, borrowing, begging, bits of equipment and whatever, um, that I decided to have the idea for Eden but I knew nothing about plants at all. Sorry to interrupt, and how old are you at this time? Uh, when I changed my life, I was 37. Okay, so you're of a certain age. I mean, you fit Ow, in- I'm 63, I'm really old, <laughs> nearly 64. And no idea at the time of like, you didn't have plans for what was to come, you were just restoring this, this garden. 
and kind of like it was fun or it was a project that you enjoyed, something like that? No, it was more than that. It became, have you ever seen the film Fitzcarraldo by Werner Herzog about the man who wants to build an opera house at the end of the Amazon? I haven't. It, it, no, it was like, it was a brilliant movie, you should see it. I, 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 I just had this desire to put my passion and complete commitment into something. And for some reason, well, one of the things I learned when I was in the music industry is if you love something and you are not a freak, there will be millions and millions and millions and millions of people who feel the same way about it as you do. Therefore, the only issue is marketing. Are you enjoying meeting this guest? Are you thinking about what you care about? I recommend making it active. Think about what you could do, not just analyze and plan, not do what others tell you to, but to live by your values. You'll enjoy your results, people will follow you more than you think, and you'll impact more than you expect. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast for examples of what others have done. So I persuaded the BBC uh, to come and film me doing the restoration and that went out on television and the rest as they say is history um, but actually it, it was a bit f funnier than that because they put out this documentary which won documentary of the year uh, when it came out um, but they forgot to mention that I wasn't open to the public so the public came and we, didn't, we couldn't stop them so we, we actually ended up with 40,000 people coming in our first year without intending to be open so we developed a career by accident well, you see, the thing is, careers and great adventures are things that happen to you along the way if you are passionate about something. A lot of people think too much, and a lot of things, people are, are bruised by failure. You see, I learned in the music industry what it's like to have people look down at you, and, you know, we, God, it was a nightmare. You go to a party. What are you? I'm a musician. Anything you've done I may have heard of? Uh, no, not yet. Um, and you, a little bit of you dies in terms of the way their eyes go a bit dull on you. Oh, you're not very interesting. Another loser pretending to be a musician. And then you, you, you meet record company guys who say they'll phone you back. And this is pre-mobile phone days, yeah? So you wait by the phone because that's the only way you'll get the thing. And you're in for a whole day waiting for that phone to ring to tell, to tell you whether they want to sign you or not. And then you think, maybe it's tomorrow. So you wait in again. And then you, another bit of you dies as you realize that they do not care. You are nothing. You are like a bit of chewing gum on their feet. And that taught me a heck of a lot about what has made me successful. Never, ever treat people like that. Never treat people like that. Because the person you talk to today that may be having a hard time could be brilliantly successful tomorrow doing something else. And I just say to all sorts of people, people who are listening to this podcast, that if you're having a hard time, if you have spent a lot of time trying to do something that is failing, look in the mirror and ask yourself, can you kill your darlings? Can you actually look at yourself and say, actually, maybe I'm not meant to do that. Maybe it's something else. And actually, every day that I'm continuing to do this thing I failed at, claiming that I am... You see, a lot of people fall in love with the thing that they're failing to do because they believe that commitment and um, holding on to this dream is what you're meant to do. And they see it as giving up if they change. I've talked so many people out of being in the wrong dream and saying, actually, it's like a fat blob in a drain. Get rid of that and have another dream. You know, turn over that card, pal. You know, lots of people are completely log jammed by having fallen in love with the wrong dream at the wrong age. And they just haven't had the courage because they think they would have wasted all those years before. You know I mean, it's like consigning your past as if I wasted. I've spent 10 years trying to be a musician. No, you haven't. 
you've had 10 years of experiences in which you realize how miserable it was to be a musician trying to make a career. Yeah. So if you're now not a musician, but you do something else, but then you're also a musician, you'll be amazed what happens to you. So I went into running, doing this garden. I knew nothing about gardens, but I understood show business. I understood that I needed to tell a new story about gardens and I marketed it and I gave it the name The Lost Gardens Of, which made it really romantic. But no one in the garden world had ever thought of doing that. That's how it all began. Look at a different twist. So if you see your life experience as being the sum total of lots of experiences that may one day go to making the perfect job, which was the job you're meant to have, the role you're meant to fulfill, then life looks very, very different. Because every failure, every relationship, every book you've read, record you've listened to, film you've seen, walk you've made, every relationship you've been bad at, all of that learning then suddenly comes into play for a magnificent moment of theatre as you suddenly discover the thing that's meant to actually be catching you by the snout and leading you off into your dream. This is such a refreshing view. I, I want to, okay, now I want to give you the, the uh, one of the things that the purpose of this podcast is to bring leaders and ask them to do something and share their experience uh, so that people can hear that it's not so easy, how it goes. Would you be up for doing something that you're not already doing, you know, not to save the whole planet, but uh, to take on a a challenge to live by some value of yours? You know what? Uh, I'm not sure I am. I know that doesn't sound very sporting. It's just that I can't think of what it is that I would like to do, or rather, I can't think of something that I can, in all honesty, say I will stick to um, that would sufficiently change anything. Give me a suggestion of what the sort of thing you think that I might be able to do. Well, what I want to point out is that um, it's not the size of the thing. I I found that I think of this, I've come to see these things more of skills than of magnitude of what you do. Because people, you know, I think some of the most debilitating beliefs people have are, one of them is, if I do this, but no one else does, then what difference does it make? And others, well, this thing is so small, it's not worth doing, but that thing's so big, it's too hard. And you know, with any skills, it's like you start with basics, you start with very simple things. And then you, as you develop the skills, then other things, the things that seemed hard now don't seem so hard. And the things that seemed even small things, they just become automatic. Uh, That's true. I taught myself to play the, to do the yo-yo once. Uh-huh. And that was, that was difficult. But the moment you learn, the funny thing is the moment you've learned how to do it, you can't imagine not being able to do it. It's a very odd thing. The hula hoop, I never mastered. I just didn't have swinging enough hips. Um, But things like not using single-use plastics, um, I do occasionally use single-use plastics, and my partner and I try not to. It's just that sometimes when we fly or whatever, going places, you have to. So I I don't want to agree to something that I know in advance I wouldn't do. So I could be very easy. I will promise not to drink any Perno. I hate Perno. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, you know, I, 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 um, I tell you what I will do. I will build a most magnificent 
compost heap of my own. Having built a giant one for Eden, everybody mocks me because I have never bothered to do it for myself. Can I do that? Yeah. It's, I'm I will build a great, and I will have, but I will have, let me tell you, a better class of worm. Uh-huh. Well, I don't like the look of that. What's going on in there? <laughs> so this is, uh, so people can't see Sweet corn. They can hear, yeah, so I've got corn cob, some onion skins. Uh, this is some epizote that um, my sister gave me from her garden. It's that, it, I mean, I take the leaves off, so that's the stems of them. Anyway, so people who are listening, they can't see that I just showed him the compost that I keep on my countertop here. And when that fills up, I put it in the freezer. And that when, it, when that fills up, I have to walk it down to the farmer's market and drop it up there. Although, as a result of, see, someone on this podcast, uh, Jeff Brown, who's got a podcast called the Read to Lead Podcast, he started working with his homeowners association to, do, to get um, curbside pickup of recycling in his neighborhood. And he kept building and building and building. And I thought, he kept going. He's, he's the only person who's done four episodes on my podcast because he keeps doing more. And I kept saying how dealing with my co-op board is really, I don't like dealing with my co-op board. But he kept working with his homeowners association. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. So I proposed at our last annual meeting to form a sustainability committee. And some people joined. And it looks like we're going to get compost in the building that now I have to walk it like a mile to, to drop off my compost. But now soon it's probably going to be my building as a result of this guy who didn't know, he was just looking into maybe some, I mean, you can listen to the episode or the listeners can listen to the episodes. He, he was just kind of thinking about it. And he, he, the more he did it, the more his neighbors liked him doing it, the more he was able to make progress. And by the way, in, I, I can't help but plug my book here, is that he interviews hundreds of leadership, authors of leadership books, and none of them led him to actually take on a leadership role himself. But then I did. So people are talking Marvelous. <laughs> that's terrific. I think you should have a chocolate medal for that. I think that's fantastic. And so when, uh, well, I give it to him because he inspired me back. There's a couple of people who have inspired me back. The plogging actually emerged from John Lee Dumas because he picked up plastic from his beach. And that got me thinking about picking up stuff. So you never know where these little things might lead. Even so, yeah. So if you make a compost heat, that sounds... That sounds great. I mean, it sounds like... It's pretty modest, but I'm, I'm, gonna get, I'm getting excited about it now. I needed this moment with you to actually push me over the line. I think a lot of people, I bet everyone who's listening has something in the back of their head. They're like, you know, I have been meaning to do X or Y or Z. And then when they hear that other people are doing something, I think that, make, that enables them to do it. Because we're, as you said before, I think it was before we started recording, we're herd creatures. We, we like to follow people as much as we say that it's easier to do what other people are doing. But everyone, everyone's doing these things in their own way, but they're not really out about it. No, no, that, that, that's right. They're not really out about it. But I think one of the things that we need to watch in the so-called environment movement, I don't want to be in the environment movement anymore. I don't want to be there because I think this is just citizenship. And the moment you define it as other by being the environment movement, it feels a bit weird. It feels like it's, it's got a bit of worthiness. I've never liked worthiness. I've always hated worthiness. I've always wanted to be with people who are flawed um, because there's something about the high expectations of people who set themselves up to be perfect that all makes, always makes me wonder whether in their private life there's something a bit perverted about them. Do you know what I mean? It's a bit like Roman Catholic bishops. 
uh-huh. yeah, I, I was once, I think I was at a date with a girl, I forget. And she said it in a way that I knew it, but she said it so bluntly. I was like saying how, I forget how, I felt like I was a little odd compared to others. She looks at me and she goes, Josh, nobody is normal. Yeah. And it's such a liberating realization. And the whole point of meeting someone is to learn their idiosyncrasies and quirks and stuff. And not, I used to look at like the gap in the Ben and Republic and think, well, that's where normal people shop there, but no one's normal. Everyone's got their thing. That's exactly right. No one is normal. And the only thing that gets in the way of good relations between most people is when they have this issue that they suddenly think that their normal is the normal. No. Be open. That's a great thing. That would be a good thing for every one of your listeners to buy open to be, would be to actually get to know somebody that they would traditionally think that they wouldn't like and see what happens. Yeah, it's it's develops a whole set of skills that I am <laughs> at the very beginning of learning. Uh, so after we after we finish recording, if it's okay with you, I'll schedule a time when we can talk about how the compost is going. We can. We've got to give it at least the time for the compost to start, you know, festering in a very nice way. By the way, um, is there a saying in America? I need to know this. There's no smoke without fire. We say where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah. Right. And when people use that, and, and in, in, in Britain also, there is that Shakespearean quote, the lady doth protest too much. Yeah. Meaning that if we accuse you of something, there's no smoke without fire. Therefore, there's bound to be some truth in it. You then defend yourself, and then people say, ah, oh, the lady doth defend himself too much, see? So it must be true. Now, I have got the ultimate defense for you. It will be worth you having spoken to me for the last half hour just for this. Uh-huh. When someone next says, there's no smoke without fire, you know what the answer is? Yes, there is, in a dung heap. <laughs> I envy, you know, this. I, I look forward to hearing how it goes. I hope you enjoyed hearing how someone who couldn't think of anything to do environmentally, in a short period of time, he found something that he took on, and it sounds to me like he's going to enjoy this compost heap with all the worms. I also hope you enjoyed hearing how Jeff Brown's and John Lee Dumas's progress led me back from their conversations with me on this podcast, which I recommend you go back and listen to. As an aside, my building's sustainability committee, it formed. I suggested forming it, and they said, go for it. People are now stopping me in the hallway, thanking me, and volunteering to work on it. Work that I would have thought I would have had to do, they're doing. So that's been successful. One of the first things we're doing is we're getting in-building compost collection for curbside pickup by the city. So we're one of the first buildings in Manhattan to do it. We're not the first, but we're one of the first. As far as John Lee Dumas' stuff goes, today I went plogging earlier. Back to Tim Smith, Sir Tim Smith. I heard passion, loving what he does, global leadership. And that's from out of being a rock musician, which probably was a lot of fun, but didn't prepare him for anything here. Sounds like not a bad life. And I wonder for yourself, what disasters are around for you to fix, for you to achieve similar success out of disaster? Does hearing leaders acting on their values make you think of yours? Nothing will make you feel better than acting on them. Value means better. Acting on your values means improving your life. Committing publicly helps many people and builds community too. If you want, click on Commit to a Personal Challenge to share what you do with this community. You'll be a leader among leaders. We're more than a podcast. We're a movement to share how acting on environmental values means fun, joy, growth, and so on, not sacrifice or deprivation. If you want to join or help, contact me at joshatspodak.net or at joshuaspodak.com slash podcast. You'll grow as a leader. You'll enjoy yourself. 
and the world and your communities will thank you for it.